Hello, good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Comics Experience Graphic Novel of the Month Club, the Comics Masterpiece Edition uh, for the month of uh, January 2021. What a um, momentous day this is in American history. Uh, the president has been impeached for the second time, just to date this for posterity. Uh, and it's a crazy time, and I want to make it better by talking about not that. I want to talk about comic books, and that's a thing that makes me feel happy and feel calm, and I want to feel happy and calm right now. Uh, and, and a book that makes me feel very happy is our selection this month, um, the, the amazing Usagi Ujimbo uh, by Stan Sakai, who we are really, really blessed uh, to have with us here tonight. Uh, hey, hello. Ryan. How are you? Doing good. Excellent. Excellent. Um, yeah, this is, uh, this, is a, this is a great book. And um, this is a comic book that you have been publishing, uh, well, various publishers have been publishing, but you have been creating uh, nonstop since 1984. 1984, and right now I'm with my fifth publisher. Yeah. We started off with Thoughts and Images in Seattle, then uh, Fanographics, uh, Mirage Studios, or Mirage Publishing, rather. And then Dark Horse, and currently I'm with IDW. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's amazing. Um, you are, as far as I know, the longest running, continuous, independent publishing comic that's that's being published currently. <laughs> no, I mean I, I think it's important because yeah. you've been doing this nonstop since 1984. There have been issues you saw you have come out every mm -hmm. single month throughout all of that whole period and you cannot say that about any other comic uh comics that i that have lasted that long say an elf quest or something like that it certainly haven't been contiguous over that that period of time mm -hmm. there are comics that have put out more issues you've got uh, 12, yeah, 12. i did take a couple of hiatus i worked on um 47 ronin and i took maybe six to six months off for that uh Sure, but but every year there's still new Usagi material coming out on a regular, continuous basis. I I am in awe of this as an achievement. I have to say. Oh, thank you. Yeah, uh, but by my count, you're well over five thousand pages of Usagi. Well over, I'd say more closer to six thousand. Yeah. Wow, that's 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 crazy. Hmm. Did you? Did you think then that that would happen? No. Uh, back when I started Usagi, it was just thinking about what can I do next month. And now I'm thinking of story ideas that I won't start working on for another five years or so. Um, yeah, so I have that, I have that uh, luxury now of actually planning ahead, building up, laying down groundwork for stories that really won't see the light of day for, you know, years from now. Wow, it's, it's, it's amazing that not only do you go so far back, but you're already reaching that far forward too. <laughs> I, I, think that, I, think that's, I think that's so great. So I didn't, I didn't actually start this with the first question I ask everybody. So let's, let's go with the official first question, even though I mm -hmm. asked the question already. Um, the official first question is always, why comics? Of all, you're a fantastic storyteller. You're a fantastic artist. Of all the things you could be doing, what is it about comics that that appeals to you, that attracts you, that that made it your life's work? I love comics. Comics gave me my love of reading in general, and it taught me to read. It taught me 
or like I said, I love reading and comics was my introduction to reading. I remember the first comic book I bought by myself. It was um, Disney's uh, Sleeping Beauty. I bought it at Star Supermarket. It was a quarter. It was one of those uh, thick books. Uh, and, you know, I was reading uh, comics uh, since the uh, late 50s. And I used to buy all the uh, DC comics, the Marvel comics as it came out. And comics back then were, you know, when I came in, it was a dime. So, you know, I still have a lot of those. So uh, back, but back then it wasn't collectible. It was just something you read. Uh, we traded to friends uh, and uh, we just tossed them in a, a box or something. Yeah. So, you know, I still have a lot of those old ones. That's that's fantastic. Sleeping Beauty was your first comic. That uh, had you just seen the movie in the theater or something? Is no, that why you? I, my mom bought, brought me to uh, the the market, and okay. I think it was about uh, I was five five years old, and that you know it was a Disney comic, so I wanted um, something to read, and uh, so I said I wanted this one, and I had the money. It was a quarter, so you know. Nice. It's uh, fairy tales, and you know, I was familiar with I was familiar with fairy tales, so of course, you know, that's something that was recognizable to me. So I wanted that's that. Excellent. Yeah, that's excellent. That's excellent. Um, uh, as far as I know, your first professional work was was lettering uh, Gru with Sergio. Is is that is that right? Yeah. That was one of the very early ones. I was doing freelance work, artwork in. Uh, in Los Angeles, and uh, I was doing like record album covers, book illustrations, um, magazine illustrations, advertising, but I really wanted to get into comics, and so I actually um, found Sergio's name in a phone book, and I wrote him a letter saying introducing myself, and uh, we had a couple. We had, well, we had one mutual friend, so I I name dropped uh, Dave's name, and uh, he called me up and said, oh, let's get together. In fact, there was a CAPS meeting, a Comic Arts Professional Society meeting in Los Angeles, and he invited me to the CAPS meeting, and I joined then, and I've been a member since. And uh, I've been a friend, uh, Sergio and I have been friends, you know, ever since then, basically. And it was through CAPS that I learned about um, Steve Galacci in Seattle, who wanted to create a uh, published comic but did not have enough material. So I submitted uh, Usagi, not Usagi, but actually Nielsen Gronkumper. Nielsen in Albedo number one. And when that did well, it sold out. Uh, and he just said, do you have anything else? And I submitted uh, Usagi. And that was for Albedo two. But that was probably my first comic book work. But back then I was also teaching calligraphy. And so Sergio at a CAPS meeting said, you know, I'm launching a new comic book, uh, Grew the Wanderer, and this is through Pacific Comics. And he said, I'm looking for a letterer. And I said, oh, I'm a terrific letterer. So I, I've been lettering Grew ever since. In fact, I, sent, I just sent Sergio a, a, a book that I just lettered for him um, just this past week. So we're still working on Grew. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, did you uh, did you go to, to to school to college um, to study art or? I I have a fine arts major uh, or fine arts degree from the University of Hawaii. The emphasis on drawing and painting, but of course, you know, no comic books. Back sure, 
back then, Commodore. Back then, yeah. Yeah, back then. It was uh, in the 70s. And so comic books were not regarded as they are now. So um, drawing and painting was something I wanted to get into or wanted to learn. So that was my major. And four years later, I got my degree. Yeah. Um, uh, What were the opportunities then other than sort of, you know, Knowing Sergio Argonis, you know what I mean. Like, how? What was? What was the path? How did? Did you see yourself going into comics? Did you before meeting with Sergio? Or no, I wanted to get into comics even in when I was living in Hawaii. But back then, you pretty much had to live in New York or that you know that area, and Hawaii was as far as New York as you could get and still be in the United States. So I figured I'd never go into comics. Uh, but the opportunity came where I could actually move to Los Angeles. And by that time, um, Jack Kirby was already there. And I think he was just about the first real professional to move out of the New York area into um, the uh, West Coast. So um, I started making contacts there. I um, I met with Scott Shaw, Mark Evanier, a whole bunch of others, especially through CAPS. And, uh, you know, that's how I, pretty much got into comics. It was uh, um, lettering for surgery was always was a big step was a big um, was a big break for me because you know, certain grid wanderers. So, uh, you know, it was Sergio's Sergio's book. So uh, it was very well received and um, a lot of uh, accolades and everything. So, you know, yeah. it, it was a good decision or I thank Sergio for um, helping me break into comics. Yeah, Caps is uh, Caps is is not a union. It's what more it, of a social. It's a club. It's yeah, it's a club. Okay. Yeah, because and it's for the print media. Yeah, uh, comic books, book illustrations, newspaper uh, newspaper strips, mm-hmm. gag cartoons. Uh, because the animators had their own groups, uh, like the animation union and everything, but. Uh, Comics, comic book creators pretty much works, work in isolation. We tend to work at home in our little studios or at most uh, we'll have a studio with uh, two or three other people. But for the most part, comic book artists work in isolation. So this was a good opportunity for uh, cartoonists to get together. And it's pretty much just to socialize, to talk about the industry, to get to know each other. Um, yeah, the first Caps meeting, I um, met Jack Kirby. And so, you know, um, you know people like that, it was it was great. Um, it was Caps was, or Comic Arts Professional Society was started by Sergio, Mark Avenir, and um, Don Rico. And basically because uh, cartoonists like us work in isolation. And, you know, we used to even have, Oh, baseball games and uh, picnics and uh, outings, but uh, that was a long time ago. Now people got so busy, and with yeah. COVID, of course, you know, can't can't yeah. even have meetings nowadays. But uh, yeah, Caps is a great place to meet other cartoonists. Yeah, yeah, it, I, it's it's hard to think of that working other than like in a regional basis, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but it seems like this is a thing that that is very valuable to cartoonists and and a great way to network and a great way to 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 meet your peers and to 
figure out what's going on in your business. It as is, well. it is. And I'm also a member of the National Cartoon Society, but that's pretty much, uh, we'll have a Rubin Award uh, weekend, but that's just once a year. Whereas mm -hmm. cast would meet every week, uh, I mean, every month. And, uh, you know, get to know each other. And also too, our friendships come out of there. And in fact, uh, we used to, I used to be part of a lunch group and many of them were CAPS members and we'd meet every Friday. And we uh, were meeting for about, let's see, about 20, 20, Scott Shaw has been in that group for about, must be about 30, 35 years now. And it's uh, every Friday. A lot of Disney artists, uh, myself, uh, surgery, which drop by every so often. And it's kind of neat, just meet at a restaurant and just socialize and uh, get to know each other, um, talk about the industry, what's a good place to work, who's looking for work, uh, what uh, companies are hiring, that type of thing. Yeah, yeah, no, that's fantastic. Um, so you uh, you started with thoughts and images uh, some pages in in Albedo the Albedo the uh, the anthropomorphic anthology. Um, uh, did you did you set out to be an anthropomorphic artist or <laughs> or did you kind of fall sideways into that? If you see what I mean, I wanted to do superheroes. Okay. I wanted to do uh, Spider-Man because that was my favorite character. Um, and uh, it just so happened that I had developed these two characters, Nelson Ground Thumper and Usagi, uh, just out of a whim. Usagi began because I wanted to do a series, um, write and draw a series about uh, the samurai, about specifically uh, Miyamoto Musashi, who is actually a real samurai in uh, 17th century Japan. Yeah. And, uh, but one day I just sketched out a, uh, a rabbit with his ears tied up into a chunmagi, a samurai tamdan. And I love that. I love that look. So I, instead of doing a story about Miyamoto Musashi, I changed my character, named him Miyamoto Usagi. Usagi means rabbit in Japanese. Yeah. And, you know, he, he just took off. And after my first Usagi story, I just fell in love with the character. And I've been doing Usagi for, like I said, more than thirty-five years now. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a, it's amazing, and uh, uh, I, it, it it impresses me when I think about it, and it not just not just the longevity of it, but how you've been able to really bring this whole world to life, and the relationships between the different people, <laughs> and and it's you know it's it's just it's a grand story that. Mm -hmm. That holds up, even when you look at these older. I don't. I, mean, I don't know if you look at the, you know, at the first book and go, oh, or not. Um, but uh, but it's still, it's it's a great deal of fun, uh, even even at these earliest days. Yeah, and you know, I still enjoy it. I'm working on this new story, and I'm really excited about it. And so excited that yesterday I uh, rough penciled out uh, seven pages, and that's uh, a huge amount for me. Usually, I do maybe two or three pages a day uh, as rough pencils. And, uh, but seven pages was, you know, that's wow. not a record, but it's near a record. Yeah, no, that's a lot. That's, uh, wow, that's, no, that is, that's really good. Um, uh, what's your, what's your process like in building a story? Is it, is it a lot of research and then kind of bursts of actually doing the cartooning or, well, it starts off with the idea. 
And the idea comes from anywhere, from watching TV or reading the book or just uh, learning something about Japanese history. And uh, I'll think about it and for about maybe, oh, a week to a month and kind of think out a story. Um, and looking uh, say, oh, what if this happens and instead of that, uh, what if there's a twist here or, or it's just something. And I don't actually write it down until I have the story kind of complete in my head. Mm-hmm. Then uh, I'll write it down in an outline form. And then once that's done, I'll break it down into uh, thumbnails. So in the outline form, I'll kind of estimate how many pages each scene would take. And then uh, that helps me uh, plot out or um, pace out the story because mm-hmm. each story has to be in 24 page segments. And uh, once the thumbnail is done, then I start on the actual, um, the actual penciling, then lettering, then inking. And then I send it off to um, my editor, Bob Kernow, who sends it off to the, um, the colorist to get it um, finished. Yeah. So the entire process takes about, oh, maybe five weeks from the uh, once the um, story is being uh, written to the finished end product. And like I said, about five weeks for me. Yeah. And uh, so Usagi comes out roughly about 10, 10 times a year, maybe. Yep. Mm. Yeah. And one free paperback collection every, every year as well. Yeah. So maybe let's go into some of the, the steps a little more. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're, uh, when you're writing yourself an outline, um, is this just like a page, maybe two pages per issue? Uh, is it longer than that? Well, I have um, a notebook. And okay. uh, it can take anywhere from one page to uh, 12 pages. And uh, it, deter- it depends upon how detailed I am. Sometimes uh, I'll write uh, the dialogue. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I may write the dialogue for the entire story, just in dialogue form. Other times I'll just say, oh, three-page fight scene here. Or um, so it really depends upon the the story. The sure. um, the length of the um, the outline depends upon the length of the story or how I feel at that time, how I'm working. If I'm very conscious about dialogue, then um, there'll be a lot more pages. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, you said you, you uh, are writing a notebook, so I'm assuming that means you're writing everything out in longhand first. It's all in longhand, yeah. yeah. And I have all these little notebooks um, that I buy from the um, art store, and yeah, so they're all in a row, and I date them and everything. So that's 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 cool. That's uh, I don't suppose there's any chance that it's like within your camera shot. No, no, no. no. Okay, all right. Just because I I love the idea of like a wall of, you know, here's here's the notebooks. <laughs> but all my um, my thumbnails are on typing paper, copy paper now. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just photoc- um, not photoc- but, uh, staple them together once I'm done. And I've got 35 years of those as well. Um, and I actually have just about all my story pages, my uh, printed story pages. So uh, once that's done, I put them in a plastic bag and keep them all in FedEx boxes. So large FedEx boxes, each FedEx box um, holds about one graphic novel worth of um, artwork. So I have them, I have about um, 
35 books yeah. about, uh, with yeah. about 34 Usagi Ujimbo plus I've got Ronin, Senso, Yokai, and a bunch of others. So yeah. I've got a whole bunch of FedEx boxes in my closet. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's, that's incredible. Uh, uh, wow. Like all, to have all that stuff going back, that's, that must, uh, that, that must be well, pretty cool. Like, well, look at it. I think also keeps all his pages. Yeah. 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 Um, so uh, uh, your thumbnails, um, are they super sketchy? Are they relatively detailed? Is it something that only you could understand? You know, these are mainly things that only I can understand. Um, some thumbnails are just see um, uh, squares on a page. Like yeah. this is how I want the page to be broken down. And others are more detailed, like I'll put um, action or faces. Sometimes they're just blank. It really depends. Uh, but it's in the thumbnail stage that I write the actual script. I'll write the script on the edges of the thumbnails. And um, when that's uh, pretty much my blueprint. That's what I follow and to do the artwork. And I still work, um, like, like I said, or like you said, everything's done uh, old style. Um, but I still work on um, 11 by 17 inch two ply Strathmore code press Bristol. And I love the feel of the artwork and it's, I love the process of creating the comics. And I've been, I'm just used to that. Uh, I have the uh, old fountain pens that I still use, um, the Corinor um, uh, art pens. And these are, have been discontinued. They were actually discontinued about, must be 15 years ago. But I had heard that they were going to uh, be discontinued. So I drove all over Los Angeles to all the art stores, to all the stationery stores, buying up whatever they had. So I've still got maybe another you know, 10, 15 year supply of uh, those pens. And now I'm in the, um, what's hard is the, the inks because the, not as many people are working with uh, inks anymore. So the quality of inks have, uh, really gone down so it was hard to find a good substitute when my inks uh, were discontinued rather the rather the um, formula was changed i used to use an ink called the um what was it anyway one ink uh was discontinued so i called the company and they said oh don't oh it was an old fw ink it was great it was waterproof it was free-flowing and it was terrific, but uh, they changed the formula to an acrylic that clogged up the ink, clogged up my pens really badly. So I called the company to complain and they said, don't tell anyone, but the um, badge black opaque is the old FW formula. And so I started buying that. In fact, uh, I told Sergio, you know, I'm buying 40 bottles of badge black opaque. You want me to buy a couple of bottles for you? And he told me, oh, no, you don't have to. I just bought a gallon. <laughs> <laughs> you know, who buys a gallon of ink? <laughs> but he, he did, he used it up. But now Magic Black Opaque has also changed its formula. So I've been um, buying a, a Platinum Carbon Black from a Japan. And so I found that's a great ink. However, now the quality of the um, the paper has gone down, and they're very uneven. Some 
of the Bristol tends to um, spread a lot. They just don't hold the ink as well. So when that happens, I've got to switch to another ink, like a, a thicker ink that's you that's specially made for fibrous paper. So we're always looking for you know things to work around with. There's new problems that come up that ah, uh, just thinking, oh, maybe, <clears throat> maybe I should just switch to computers, but uh, I'm just not into the digital artwork. And um, at this time, I, like I said, I love the process of creating comics the old, uh, the old fashioned way. Yeah, no, absolutely. Have you, uh, have you experimented with digital at all? Have you ever tried? Uh, I have. In fact, I've got a program on my uh, iPad and we also have a Wacom tablet, big one um, that, uh, <clears throat> Uh, our daughter Emmy uh, does uh, some coloring on, mm -hmm. but uh, also Judy does some drawing on that. But yeah. I, I just can't get into the feel of the drawing. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Well, there, I mean, it seems to me that that at least some of the joy is kind of the resistance and the feedback that you're getting. I love the movement against the object, right? Yeah. I it's I've even tried plate finishes, you know, the smooth uh, paper. And I always go back to the uh, vellum, the uh, cold press paper, just because I love the texture, working with paper with texture on it. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so uh, let's go back to the thumbnails, just because I, I I always love this process stuff. Um, mm -hmm. uh, you're doing thumbnails and dialogue at the same time. Uh, how many how many pages are is on a page of thumbnails? Uh, it's uh, four pages of okay. uh, on one uh, eight and a half by eleven inch on copy paper, so I can get uh, and basically it's uh, yeah my entire script is written that way. Yeah, yeah. Are you just you just working with a ballpoint pen? Uh, not with a pencil. I did oh. use a, a pen, but now it's, I just switch to pencils because yeah, yeah. I sometimes have to switch or color on change on dialogue or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, a mechanical pencil or a, or a mechanical pencil. Yeah, just just you know, making sure I understand how you work, my friend. I use everything from a 0.3 to a 0.9 lead. So from a very thin lead all the way to a, a very thick lead. The thick leads I use for my uh, scripts for my thumbnails. Yeah, and for the uh, thinner leads, I start off uh, my initial roughs or for the uh, finished artwork, I lay down my basic shapes with a, a 0.3 millimeter uh, uh, lead, uh, say about 2H or at most uh, uh, an HB. And then once the, um, the shapes are roughed in, then I'll go over with a, a 0.5, a 0.5 uh, B lead and then I can put more detail and everything in it. But still, when I say detail, my, my pencils are pretty loose because I do most of my drawing in the inking stage. Yeah. And you know, because I'm familiar with the character and everything, I've been doing this so long that um, I, you know, I can pretty much um, just rough out a page uh, very quickly and still uh, know, pretty much know what the, uh, I'm supposed to ink. Yeah. Um, so when you're when you're breaking down a page in the thumbnails to get your pacing right, mm -hmm. this may this may sound like a goofy question, but um, how much are you are you thinking overtly about sort of the language of comics and like 
the page turn? Very much. I'm always aware where the scene would cut. Uh, I kind of want each page to end, not in a cliffhanger, but to encourage a reader to go to the next page, either end the scene there, end the scene at the end of the page, or do something where, you know, uh, it will encourage or entice the reader to go on, like, oh, what's going to happen next? Yeah. That type of thing. And I'm always aware of where the um, scene ends and where the page ends. Yeah. Um... Uh, and it's and it's great because you're you're in a position you've been lucky enough that you're publishing comics where you don't have to deal with ads. You know, can you imagine if you were drawing Spider Man and you didn't actually have any control over right. over what your left hand page was? You know, yeah. um, that would be that's that's a real that's a real challenge that I I sometimes wonder how Marvel artists deal with. Um, uh, I think Russ Manning used to have this technique where. He wouldn't end the scene at the end of the page. He'd bring it over to the next page. Like the first panel of the next page would be the end of the previous scene. And again, that's his idea was to uh, entice the reader to um, go over to the next page. Yeah. I kind of like it. You know, it seems to me cleaner just to end it, end it at the end of the page. Sure. No, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I would say Alan Moore too, when he writes a script, is very mm -hmm. much the you you dangle you dangle the words over exactly. so that someone just has yeah. to keep moving. You know, um, I, I read Alan Moore's script and it's insane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so detailed. Yeah. Did you did you draw something that he uh, that he wrote? No, I did not. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. But I love his work. So. Yeah. Um, I worked. Uh, we did a story with uh, Harvey Kurtzman. Uh, Serge and I did a pirate story, I think, for a book called Strange Adventures, I think. Yeah. And Harvey sent us thumbnails, or rather, it was a full-size, uh, eight and a half by 11-inch uh, single page, where what, each page would be on a separate piece of paper. And his thumbnails were insane. I mean, they're so detailed that uh, I was doing just doing the inking or doing the lettering for Sergio. And Sergio gave me um, Harvey's script, which was a thumbnail, so the roughs. And he just told, he gave me blank pieces of paper and said, just put the um, dialogue where Harvey put it on, on his uh, on his thumbnails. And he, I'll put it, I'll fill in the rest. And that's what I did. I, basically I was lettering on blank sheets of paper and gave it to Sergio and he worked around it. But uh, his, uh, I guess everyone has different process. When I've written stories for other uh, artists to draw, I would always uh, do really detailed thumbnails where I put maybe two uh, pages of comic book art on one piece of uh, uh, copy paper and um, just submit it that way, just send it to the artist that way. And I'd have to make it, like I said, very detailed for them. Yeah, no, it's it's one of the things that I I love about comics more than almost anything else is that each person approaches it their own way, and I've I've interviewed you're you're probably somewhere in the two hundredth cartoonist that that we've interviewed here on this, and I'm not sure that I've heard the same answer twice of mm -hmm. how we create, you know, and and nobody's wrong is yeah. actually the yeah. best part of that, right? Because it's it's 
whatever works for you as an individual creator is the right way to make comics. Mm -hmm. That's right. Uh, when Sergio works and Sergio and Mark work together, Mark Evanier, uh, they have their own way of working. However, when Mark writes for another uh, artist, I mean, his scripts are completely different. For a while, uh, at the beginning, Sergio would uh, send Mark some uh, rough pages, and Mark would write the dialogue directly on the original artwork and then send it to me. And then I would, um, again, you know, letter it on the artwork. Yeah. So, whereas other, for other people, he would uh, actually type out a script. So each, even for when the same person works with different creators, they, they have to alter their style. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's the amazing thing about comics because you know that's not how any other art form operates. Oh yeah, every and other art form is much more standardized. You yeah. know, yeah. And in my case, because I do everything, you know, I have complete control of everything. Yeah. Also, the uh, types of story, the genres. I can do a, a adventure, or romance, a mystery. I can do pretty much anything I want, and uh, you know, it all fits in Usagi's world. Yeah. No, and it's and it's fantastic too because Usagi does you can do any of those things with the character. It's not um, you know, it's probably better that you're not drawing Spider-Man. Do you know? Because because you couldn't do that, right? It would be much harder to do that. Well, you know, uh Marvel did a book called um Strange Tales, where yeah. they got some independent comic book creators to do Marvel stories or use the characters, and I got a call from the editor saying I could do use any of their characters and I could do anything I want with them. My first thought was, oh, I can do a Spider-Man story. But then, you know, I thought, well, what I would really want to do is a Hulk story, a Samurai Hulk story. I'd love to see the Hulk in Samurai armor battling a huge um, uh, army of Samurai. So I said, you know, that's what I want to do. And I want to kill him at the end. And he said, sure, no, not a problem. So I got to do my Samurai Hulk story, and he dies a nice death at the end. Yeah. And I also integrated it into Japanese mythology, uh, took uh, items from folklore, Japanese folklore, to add to the story just to give it a bit more, uh, bit more flavor of Japan. Yeah. Yeah. How much, um, how much time do you think that you put in uh, an average week in research? Uh, research, it depends upon the story. Uh, when I did Grass Cutter, Grass Cutter actually took about five years to research. And, um, but that, that story began with the uh, creation of the Japanese islands, uh, it follows sword, uh, Kusanagi no Tsuki, uh, throughout Japanese history, uh, culminating in the Genpei Wars, Japan Civil Wars. And, and that took a long time just because uh, there are so many different things I wanted to put in the story. Also, too, on uh, the grass cutter, the grass cutting sword is a real sword. However, uh, it has not been really seen for, oh, I'm not sure how long, but generations. And uh, it's kept hidden in a, in a temple. So there are no photographs of the actual sword, or there might be one that got leaked out or something. But, uh, and most woodcuts uh, display um, grass cutter, the grass cutting sword as a katana with a Japanese single edged sword. And I knew it was a tsurugi, a Chinese style sword. So it took a while just to hunt down the visuals of what grass cutter actually looked like. And I just spread the words that I need a picture of grass cutter. And 
the internet was in its infancy back then, but uh, no, people would were combing the internet for me and saying, and three months later, someone said, I found the visuals. It took another month or so to actually confirm that's what grass cutter looked like. But uh, that that took a while. So grass cutter probably took the, um, the long, longest uh, time to do the research on. Yeah. It, it was worth it. It uh, received the Eisner Award. It uh, also received a Haxter Award and it was uh, received the uh, American Library Association Award too. It's been used in Japanese history classes at the university level, and it's been used in other classes in other schools as well. So yeah. I'm really proud of that story. Yeah, yeah, and it's a fun story just on its own as well, which is which is the great thing about it. Um, um, uh, I was going to ask something there. Uh, well, Jordan tells me we have a question, so let's let's bring up a question from the audience for a minute. Um, it's Seth. Hey, Seth Rosenblatt. Um, what are some of your favorite parts of Japanese history that you haven't yet been able to adapt? Oh, I've just touched upon the um, foreigners coming into Japan uh, in a story called The Hidden. Uh, I talked about the, um, the introduction of Christianity in Japan and how it was an outlawed religion. And um, to practice that was punishable by death. And I actually was able to go to Japan and I visited a, a mirror maker who was, or still is a cultural, a designated cultural asset. And actually um, he is the last in the long line of uh, traditional mirror makers. Everything was done by hand, but his mirrors are special in that it would reflect your reflection like a regular mirror. It would, uh, it looked like a regular mirror. However, if you shone a light a certain way, it, would, it could reflect the image of Jesus on the cross. And that was a way that early Christians could pronounce their uh, religion um, and yet still be hidden. So I thought that was wonderful. That was incredible. Wow. He had just uh, finished a, a, a mirror for the Pope. But uh, that, that was, and I got to visit his studio. So got to see all the tools and everything. So that was really neat. But that's one thing that I'd like to do more of, the um, uh, religion or uh, the, um, the foreigners, the Europeans coming into Japan at that time. Great, yeah, that sounds, that sounds fantastic. Um, let's talk about the editorial process for a second. Mm -hmm. um, Bobby Kerno is your, your editor now, who's a great guy. I, I think he's, he's a wonderful a, guy, a yeah. really smart guy. Um, uh, what's, what's it How often do you get edited? I guess is the question, right? Because you've been doing this for a really long time. And I, I yeah. suspect that you know your craft well enough that there's probably not I, a lot of notes you're getting. I'm in a very fortunate and very unique position where basically, um, the publishers have no input into my stories or artwork or anything. So I'm pretty much left alone the first time they see the story is that when it's completely finished and i send it in so i'm in a very unique position which i'm very grateful for and you know basically i own usagi i do own usagi and that came about because of my first contract with um fan graphics fan graphics books uh kim thompson was my editor back then and when we we're doing the um 
the contract. And he said, of course, you're going to keep the all the copyrights and trademarks with Usagi. And I said, oh, yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not knowing any better than, uh, yeah. So, and I so that came, you know, with all my publishers, it's, it's always been the same way where uh, I own Usagi, I own everything about Usagi. And so uh, I get to do anything, basically, I, I want to with Usagi. But on the other hand, I feel that after all these years, I've kind of earned that uh, their respect and sure. uh, you know um, being able to be left alone. Yeah, no, I I I hundred percent agree. I hundred percent agree with that. Um, uh, I, I only brought it up just because you said that you you know you sent stuff to, to Bobby before publication. So I was just wondering if there was mm-hmm. any feedback that you were getting. Yeah, there have been times, uh, especially with. Um, uh, Dana Schultz, my editor at um, at Darkport before she retired. Yep. Uh, there are a few stories that I was uncertain of, and I would do two endings, and I would send it to Diana and say, "Read this right away. Let me know which one you prefer." Mm-hmm, <laughs> and you know, I really respect her her judgment and her savvy. So, uh, in that case, I really relied upon upon uh, my editor then there was one time there was only one set an editor was kind of uh, concerned about some of my uh, what I had put in Usagi and this is early on Kim had called and said you know I'm kind of concerned about this one panel where you have Usagi cutting this guy's skull in half and there's bits of brain and blood and stuff going all over and I said you know, I showed it to Sharon before, my wife back then. I showed it to Sharon, and Sharon said, no, it's too much. And I, and I had changed it even before Kim had, had called me. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> that's the only time that an editor even suggested that I change something. Oh, that's a, I mean, that's a great record. 35 years, and you've got one change. That's uh And it wasn't for my editor. So. Yeah. yeah. Um uh, you, you're still you're still in a relationship with with Fantagraphics. Fantagraphics printed this very book mm-hmm. that we're talking about today, uh, and the first seven books in the series. In yes. fact, um, uh, I think that's great that you still have a relationship with with that publisher. Mm-hmm. Also, with Dark Horse, Dark Horse is also publishing Usagi. They've got the um, next up to uh, book thirty. Three or so, and yep. also the uh, saga books. They'll be uh, reprinting uh, new editions of the uh, saga series uh, beginning this year. Yeah, I really, I really hope that they can keep them in print this time. I, uh, I hope so. Yeah. I mean, because the thing I'll say, and we, we've talked about this before, Sam. So this is not <laughs> news out of school. But the thing that's awesome about Fantagraphics is none of these books have fallen out of print for more than maybe a month or so. Mm-hmm. Since 1987, this book has been continuously in print since 1987. Uh, you cannot say that with all the Dark Horse editions, many of them slipped out of print for years at a time, or you know, they would print really small print. Those saga books came and went, they were out of print like within four months of coming out, which is which is on one hand is great for you because it shows that you're still a very popular artist and people still really want to own your work, but. Uh, is this at all frustrating to to have these supply issues with you? It, it is very much so. And uh, 
with we're fighting that uh, with basically all our publishers. Uh, I remember when Fanographics published the uh, the uh, big omnibus, the uh, special edition. Yeah. Uh, they uh, they had told me we have enough of the special edition hardcovers that last for the entire year, and it sold out in three months. Yeah. And so you know things are unexpected like that, and I said you know let's put another edition out or at least a soft cover edition, but that did not come out for another year or so after that. Um, same thing with Dark Horse. I mean, all publishers let um, things uh, go out of print. However, you know, uh, they um, would underestimate how many copies of the new book uh, need trade paperback would sell, and it would sure. sell immediately. And um, it's just that they never up the order for the next book or something. And, you know, it's very frustrating. It's not just not, not just me, but almost uh, every creator I've talked to uh, that own their own work uh, have been victims of this. Yeah, it um, uh, it's it's tricky, I suppose, uh, particularly when you've got, uh, you know, in, in this in this smaller format, you've got mm -hmm. 35, 37 books, whatever it is. It's a lot of books. It's yeah. a lot of stuff to keep in print. But uh, but they continually sell. Um, I because you've really only done Usagi this the whole time. Uh, I mean, you've done you've done things here and there, right? But you're yeah. but you're so you must be making a living from doing this. I is, do. Is, yeah, and so I I guess I wonder how much better of a living would you make if they were all in print? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I I uh, uh, it, it's it's. And I'm not trying to get you to to to, to talk badly about anyone. That's mm -hmm. that's not the goal here. I just um, uh, if if a if as a working cartoonist, your backlist is literally your most important tool, right? Mm -hmm. It's your income. It's your whole source of living. And so, I guess my question would be: Have you ever thought at any point to take over your own backlist, to, to go into self-publishing, to do a Dave Sim or something? No, no. No, okay. I have never considered that because, you know, publishing is a full-time job in itself. Sure. And so I just was not able to take it on. So I, I and I basically, I don't like the business part. I like the create, creating part. Yeah. But the uh, business part is something that all freelancers, especially, you know, in the comic book world, we have to learn business. We have to know how to invoice. We have to know how to uh, build, uh, uh, get how to find and um, maintain uh, health um, health insurance. Uh, yeah. You know everything. Uh, pay taxes. Uh, file uh, business. Uh, get your business license and everything. Uh, what you can deduct. Uh, what's the best way? Whether you should go into a LLC or to create a corporation or just a, a personal entity, but, you know, you have to know the business end. However, you know, we're cartoonists and we're not just, we're just not geared for that. <laughs> it's it's true. Most aren't, you know, um, are do you have, are you being helped by your family? Do you? Uh... Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, in fact, uh, my wife, Julie, and I are collaborating on a uh, Chibi Usagi story. We've just about finished with that. And it's an original graphic novel, and it is wonderful. Yeah. Julie's a terrific uh, artist. Uh, um, Emmy, uh, daughter, is doing the coloring, 
Daniel, our son, is uh, put together the deal with uh, IDW. And, you know, it's uh, coming out this year, and it's great. I, I think it's really fun. Nice. Nice. You, um, you, you're in a position where if you wanted to, you could just do graphic novels. But you've made a very conscious decision to keep working in the periodical format. Now, as a guy who sells periodical comics for a living, I thank you for this. This is this is a gift to all of us. But um, uh, is this is this uh, stubbornness on your part? Does it is it actually a good business decision? Um, is it just because you like the format and you like, you know, having to fit ideas into twenty four pages? Well, I know comic books. Uh, those periodicals are one big advantage that comic book stores have over. Uh, other bookstores or retail uh, online stores, whether or um, Barnes and Noble or something, they don't sell comic book periodicals. However, comic book stores do. So that's something that you have over uh, everyone else, all the other bookstores. Personally, I like the uh, periodicals. And for me, it gives me a monthly income. Whereas for a graphic novel, I one graphic novel comes out every year. Yeah, and if I just relied on that graphic novel, I get a ton of money um, this month. But for the rest of the year, I'd just be working. Yep. But with a comic book uh, periodical style, I'm working all year, and every time I submit an issue, I get paid for it. So that sustains me throughout the entire year. So I get a bit every month or every month and a half or so. Yeah. But, um, you know, so for me, it's a business decision as well as a aesthetic decision. Yeah. As a um, uh, as a general thing, I don't. We don't have to talk about specifically what you make on things, but as a general idea, if you were to do a graphic novel, are you getting the equivalent amount of money, or or does it work out to be more or less? Uh, I I really don't. I've never yeah. bothered to. Yeah, because. They'll pay me for the comic books, right? Uh, but not to reprint it in the graphic novel format unless it meets a certain. Uh, because the uh, but what they pay me for the comic book pages or the uh, periodicals is like an advance against the royalties, and the royalties don't really kick in until either the comic book sells a certain level or the um, the um, graphic novel starts making money. Yeah, I, I imagine though uh, uh, that you you must be getting royalties from at least book one, from Grass Cutter, from Grass Cutter two, like the sort of the the spikes, I guess. It, it, I get royalties from um, all three publishers from um, yeah. uh, Fan Graphics, Dark Horse, and yeah. from IDW. So yeah, 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 and not um, only royalties, but also foreign sales as well. Yeah, Huggy's been publishing about. Oh, 16 languages, I think. Fascinating. Yeah. Oh, oh, interesting. Has there been any uh, interest in, in publishing? There has been. However, there has never been a Western comic book that has made any type of significant dent in the Japanese manga market. Mm -hmm. I mean, manga goes outward to the world, but the um, foreign books does not really uh, flow into Japan. Uh, there have been some translations of the Japanese or Western comics, but they're usually done by very small publishers and generally has not lasted very long. Uh, Japan did have some uh, manga, 
um, based on the um, Marvel stories or Marvel characters. However, these are new stories and new artwork made just for the Japanese market. And I don't believe there's any Western books that have actually made a significant dent in the manga market. Yeah. How, um, how, how much of your love of comics is, is manga as opposed to superhero comics? Oh, let's see. I love both. Uh, I read, I don't read that many superhero comics, mainstream superhero or oh, sure. Yeah, I mean, I figure now, but I, I meant I meant in in nineteen eighty because in nineteen eighty four or earlier, you mm -hmm. know, in nineteen eighty two, let's say there there wasn't very much Japanese material in the United States. I I want to say that Viz was only publishing maybe four comics a month at that mm -hmm. point. Actually, I was lettering uh, one of their very first comics on Viz. Oh, okay. Did Legend of Kamui? Yeah. And uh, but. I was aware of Japanese comics when I was uh, a kid. I grew up in Hawaii. My mom, uh, I, I, I was actually born in Japan. Yeah. And the family moved to Hawaii when I was two years old because uh, my dad was actually um, born in Hawaii. He's from Hiroshima, but born in Hawaii. Um, and so my mom would bring me uh, the Tezuka books, uh, Buddha or uh, some of the uh, Blackjack or some of the early uh, Tezuka stuff. Mm -hmm. And we had Japanese uh, a Japanese station on the television, so I saw some of the um, the anime in uh, in Japan in, in Japanese. Yeah, are, are you, you you read Japanese then? I'm, no. I'm assuming no, no? Really. okay, just the very simple stuff. Okay, so you were so you were looking at the at the Japanese comics in in Japanese, and you were just making up your own story essentially. Well, my mom would read them to me. Oh, okay, okay. He was a Japanese national, actually. My mom has a very interesting uh, backstory. She had a, she was in Nagasaki when the bomb fell, and uh, yeah, my dad was stationed with the U.S. military in the occupation forces in Japan, and theirs was one of the very first Japanese American. Um, uh, weddings marriages to be approved by the uh, u.s military so they, everything had to be approved by um by the military back then and so he was also a photographer an amateur photographer so he took a lot of uh, pictures of uh, uh post-war japan that was yeah, and, which i still have wow wow that's that's intense um wow that's super intense. I, I, I think that's cool. Um, yeah, my mom has more recently talked about her life in Japan, and it was horrific. I mean, you know, it was very tragic. I mean, I mean the, the bomb, and even before then, I mean, getting shot by American planes, you know, not shot literally, but shot at. And in high school, instead of going to school, they went, she worked at the um, uh, aircraft, airplane factory. <laughs> So uh, she was working on nose cone of some of the uh, the fighter planes. So, wow, wow. Yeah. was there was there any uh, just because I'm I'm fascinated by this? Uh, did she have any problems uh, being married to a serviceman and and because you know it's it certainly on the west coast of America we we put the Japanese into internment camps, which is horrifying and disgusting. Did she have any of those kinds of problems in Hawaii or? No, because uh, at that time, the biggest voting bloc 
in Hawaii was Japanese or Japanese American. Mm. So there was a lot of Japanese there. There were some Japanese in Hawaii that were interned. There was a small internment camp in Hawaii, but it was um, most of the Japanese Americans were pretty much left alone, even if they were in very sensitive um, positions because they were essential. Yeah. Uh, for my family, my grandfather, paternal grandfather was a fisherman and they took away his fishing boat. Um, but aside from that, uh, uh, there was not any reprisals or any uh, pre pre prejudice against the uh, Hawaii Japanese. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I, uh, it's certainly what there was on the West Coast. And it's yeah. it's one of the my most... My beauty, uh, her parents were interned. So. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's... it's uh, uh, I mean, we're, we're going to talk politics now, but uh, I mean, we've 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 been talking in in the United States recently about like oh, separating people from their children at the at the Mexican border, and you know, this is something the United States has done before. It's not this is not a new thing that we've done. Unfortunately, it's uh, it's really shameful. But um, uh, another thing I'd love to ask you about is is violence in Usagi. <laughs> Because it's an extraordinarily violent comic, mm -hmm. and yet it's really not. You know, I have no problem handing this to, you know, a twelve-year-old, right? Um, uh, because there's not really any gore to it. Um, uh, how do you, how do you think about it? How do you approach it? And and also then, what was sort of the genesis of the the little death head? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well. It's a Samurai culture, and the Samurai culture is a very violent culture. I mean, uh, the Samurai were basically warriors. There was a warrior class. And uh, at that time in Japanese history, we're talking about the turn of the uh, 17th century, so this is early 1600s, where the Tokugawa shogunate was established. <clears throat> and so the shogun's peace was upon the land, which meant a lot of the Samurai became unemployed. And so they turned to, uh, they became merchants or some uh, just uh, went on the warrior's path like Usagi. Others, uh, m and many of them turned to banditry because uh, the merchant class was rising. So there's a lot of money to be made. Yeah. And so there is a lot of violence in Usagi because it does what I think reflects the Samurai culture, at least the Samurai culture that I was familiar with growing up watching Japanese movies mainly. So there is a lot of violence, uh, a lot of death. And I came up with that little skull floating above the heads of those people who died uh, just to soften the flow of uh, death just a bit. Now, now it kind of makes death fun almost. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, uh, do, you, do, do you think about a particular audience when you're drawing a battle or... Because, as I say, I, I think that I think the Usagi is perfectly appropriate for a middle school reader. You know, for example, um, is this a conscious thing in your mind at this point, or or Nowadays, before I would always say I do Usagi for myself. This is uh, I'd be my own censor. But now I'm thinking more. Well, kids are reading this too. So, at what age that was this meant for? And so I would censor myself sometimes. Um, like not to go overboard. I just finished up uh, a horror story, which I thought uh, was just at the edge of uh, being a bit <clears throat> too scary. 
but uh, I read it again and thought, oh, it's it's okay. However, you know, I'm still kind of concerned about uh, stuff like that. Is it too um, horrifying? Is it too bloody? Is it too much violence? And I'm very much aware of that now. Yeah. Um, you're also in a position where you're one of the very few cartoonists who has been able to take their creator and it, have it crossed over with something that is truly a multimedia thing, right? The, Usagi is in, has been in the Turtles cartoon, has been in Turtles co comics. Um, I want, so I have a couple of questions there. The first one I think is, how on earth did you get them to let you keep all of your rights? Uh, you mean fan graphics or no? No, I mean the, the turtles. The because the, because the turtles has become a, a yeah. huge empire of its own, and usually, like a, a big corporation like Nickelodeon is going to try to lock down those rights as hard as they possibly can. However, uh, Usagi was integrated with the Ninja Turtles while Peter and Kevin still owned it. Yeah. Mirage Studios still owned the Ninja Turtles, so they're creators in themselves. So they're friendly with other creators. So the contract was very creator friendly. I got to keep all the rights for Usagi. And basically, they uh, it was like a licensing fee or a licensing contract where I would allow them to put Usagi in uh, the TV show, in uh, uh, merchandising such as the action figures. And uh, when the Turtles... Uh, was uh, actually purchased, I think, by Nickelodeon. Yeah. They did send me a contract saying, oh, we like to put Usagi in it. But basically, it was one of those where it was very on the, on the uh, very heavy-handed on the side of the um, the studio. Yeah. And that I did not sign. However, we renegotiated a contract, and uh, Usagi did appear with the Turtles when uh, in the last um, Nickelodeon series. Yeah. Yeah, well, and so this is this kind of amazes me. Do you have some sort of crazy, fantastic lawyer, or I do, I yeah. do. Okay, um, Mark Lefisier. I don't know if you know him. He's no, also a comic kind of writer in okay. France. He lives in France now, but uh, he used to be a Mobius's uh, 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 licensing agent for a uh, Star Watcher. So I'm really happy to get uh, John Mark, and he's terrific. He negotiated. Uh, my current uh, Netflix uh, series uh, with Gamont. Gamont uh, is the world's oldest uh, film company. And they approached me to do Usagi, to uh, do an Usagi uh, series. And so Jean-Marc uh, um, negotiated my contract for them. And it's, it's a very good contract, very fair for both parties. Yeah. Yeah, uh, uh, are you are you working in any capacity on on the show yourself or consulting? I approve everything, and I yeah. make suggestions whether for voice actors. I make changes such as, oh, like uh, this character should not be holding the blade of the sword with his bare hands. You know, right. things like that. A lot right. of cultural stuff or a lot of pronunciation things. Uh, um, and you know, they've been very open to it and. Just the process of animation is—it's time-consuming. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Because even for the script, you've got the um, outline, you've got the premise, you've got the first draft, second draft, third draft, fourth draft, final script. You've got animatics. You have 
voice uh, voice act, acting and you and it's it takes a lot of time yeah. and also to not to even mention the design work and they have to create the entire world so they're even designing things like uh, uh, Usagi's uh, aunt has a has a farm so they have to draw all the vegetables in the farm so that you've got to look at cabbages and you know everything from cabbages to this uh, uh, hairpins or um, characters and uh, props and everything so it time consumed but it, it's 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 fun and it's different and it looks really good it's a great premise and the uh, the visuals and everything I've seen so far is very promising. Are they uh, are they all episodic episodes or are they building to a story? It builds up a story. Oh, excellent, excellent. Uh, when 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 can we expect to see this? Uh, they're either seeing late this year, late twenty twenty one, or early twenty twenty two, and this will be through Netflix. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but it doesn't follow. Well, Usagi is going to be in it. My Usagi is going to be in it. However, the uh, main title character is a descendant of his. Oh. And um, it's uh, geared for a younger audience. Okay. Because, uh, that's where this series, uh, that's where the big uh, push is for now, where they found that by the time kids are like six, seven years old, they, they stopped watching uh, cartoons. They're more into video games now. So a lot of the properties or a lot of the uh, cartoons have been geared for a younger audience. Even yeah. the Ninja Turtles, the Nickelodeon one, it was rebooted for you. Seemed to be a younger audience. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, that's 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 super interesting. I, I hope it's successful and I hope uh, well, I hope it brings a lot more eyes to the book because uh, yeah. I, I think the series is going after the basically the you know, six to twelve year olds, mm -hmm. which is about the same uh, audience that the uh, Ninja Turtles uh, was after when Usagi appeared with them in the last incarnation. Mm -hmm. And that one was a neat one, the three-part one from Nickelodeon. That was a great uh, series, great episodes. Yeah, yeah. No, that's 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 really cool. Um, we'll put a pin in that and because uh, I have another question, I am told. Mm -hmm. The question is... Uh, this is from Jose Valdivia, who, who wrote me an email with this one. How did the TMNT collaboration come to be, and how has it stood the test of time? Well, it started because Usagi and the Turtles pretty much started about the same time. They, they both started in 1984. I think the Turtles first came out in about May, and Usagi first appeared in October, November. Yeah, and so at that time there were very few black and white comic books. I mean, there was Elfquest, um, Grendel, um, maybe a couple more, but not very many black and white independent books. So we supported each other. We wrote each other letters, and uh, we became friends. And the Turtles uh, got a TV series, and it was at a San Diego Comic Con where Peter and I, Peter Laird and I, were just sitting and talking, and he just said, would you like an Usagi toy? And I said, sure. And then he said, well, you know, we'll probably have to put him into the uh, cartoon. And I said, oh, that'll be great. And then it's basically, he said, well, have your people call our people, and we'll 
arrange something, except I didn't have any people. I was just myself. <laughs> so uh, they gave me some of their people. And so it was easy because we had the same people. <laughs> but then, then um, that, that really did well. The first Usagi toy sold something like 2.2 million units for the first year. Yeah. And it was great. And so when Peter uh, had the Ninja Turtle series through Fox Kids, again, he called me up and said, you know, you want to do it again? And I said, sure, you know. So we uh, did a contract and uh, again, the same licensing type of deal. And Usagi appeared in that series. And then uh, when it was sold to Nickelodeon, Nickelodeon approached me and said, we really want to put Usagi in there. So uh, we came to terms and Usagi uh, appeared in a three-part story that not featured not only Usagi, but some of the other characters too prominently on Jade, the uh, Steer of the Gods. That was one of Usagi's great villains. So that was a great storyline. How much of your uh, ability to do the book continuously since 1984 comes from these outside of comics things? Like selling 2.2 million toys, I'm assuming that you made a pretty reasonable amount of money from that controlling the, 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 the right? uh, addition to my house. So, yeah. yeah, renovation to the house. Yeah. So if if you hadn't had that relationship with the turtles and and sort of the wider audience that that had brought, do you think you'd still be able to do Usagi today? Mm, I don't know because I don't think there's any of the uh, books that were around when I first started. Yeah, that are still around today. I mean, ElfQuest is still around. Uh, through through Dark Horse, mm -hmm. uh, I can't think of any other series that have been around uh, that's still around. Yeah, in the nineteen eighties, if Usagi was still around, it would not have the um, the profile that it did uh, with if if it weren't for the turtles. Yeah, yeah, it's. Um... Yeah, it's it's because you know you want you want cartoonists to be able to make a living just from doing the cartooning, uh, but sometimes it seems like that's that's difficult to do. It is. Yeah. Well, especially now with uh, bookstores. I mean, there's not as many bookstores nowadays, uh, yeah. or even distributors. It's uh, when I entered comics, there's so many uh, comic book distributors. I mean, there were like six in just the LA area alone, yeah. and but now. I mean, there's just very small handful, if any. I guess just one major one. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. But uh, yeah. Though, on the other hand, I mean, uh, uh, IDW and Dark Horse are both also distributed by Penguin Random House, yeah. which mm -hmm. is the single largest book distributor in the world. So it's yeah. it's not it's not as though that you know every bookstore can certainly get your work. You know. Yeah. Uh, that is true. Yeah. Um, uh yeah no because when I opened when I opened Comics Experience I opened in 1989 so I'm I'm your junior in in the business um but I've been doing this a long time when, but when I opened here there were 24 comic book stores in San Francisco oh, yeah. and I believe that thanks to the um thanks to COVID we're now down to seven I believe um you know so so two thirds of the stores a little more than two thirds of the stores have gone out of business uh 
in, in the in the intervening years, which is a, a dang shame. Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. Um, what what was the thinking about um, relaunching uh, the book in color? Because it's it's now currently being published at IDW. In color. You know. If you count the number of black and white comics, success, successful black and white comics, uh, what do you have? You have uh, Walking Dead, which is actually not around anymore. Yeah. So it had to be in color to survive in today's world. Uh, back during the black and white boom, I mean, it was an asset to be printed in black and white. But now people expect color nowadays. And Usagi had to go to color. And that's one of the selling points that uh, IDW um, had when they came up to me. They said, we'll not only print the current series in color, but we'll go back and print the um, the old stories, the early yeah. stories in color as well. And that was a big selling point for me. And actually, uh, the French books have been uh, published in color for, uh, for a few years now. In fact, they predated uh, IDW in colorizing the early stories. So. Oh, so the so the coloring was already paid for? Uh, no, it's uh, a different colorist. Uh, they oh, had okay. a smaller budget than uh, what IDW has. Okay. But, um, yeah, they were printed in color before. Yeah. Um, uh, did, knowing that the new book is in color, does it does it change your approach at all in in how you do your art? Uh, not really, because when Usagi went to um, Mirage Studios, it was a color book. And yeah. actually, we got complaints because we don't like the color, even though Tom Luce's coloring was wonderful. And, uh, but Usagi is a, black, a, a white rabbit, so they figured, well, it doesn't need the color. But uh, when it was published by IDW, I did consciously uh, do the art for color, where I put less cross-acting, less detail in the um, textures. Yeah. But, uh, for the IDW books, no, I'm just uh, publishing it. I'm just drawing it as if it was black and white, like you can see the black and white artwork. And the reason for that is, first of all, I like the uh, the look of the uh, the detail and the texturing on the page. Yeah. Also, to uh, foreign editions. Foreign publishers have the choice of printing it in color or black and white. Uh, the I know the Polish market, the Polish uh, publisher Igma, had uh, said, "Well, we kind of want the to maintain the black and white look of it, and so that's perfectly fine." Whereas the French uh, publishers feel that color would be a big selling point, and the French market, um, the French uh, Usagi edition is a uh, manga size so it's smaller and okay. uh, as opposed to the bond destiny the uh, bigger size yeah so they they've been playing around the markets are they are they printing them thicker than as well or or are they they similar in profile to these it's, it's the same yeah okay. but yeah. uh spanish market is also uh, publishing the spanish and italian markets are also publishing the thicker omnibus editions like the dark horse saga books yeah yeah, um, you you're you're known for your lettering, obviously, um, uh, and in fact, you've won three Eisners for it. Um, 
I'm wondering when you when your books are translated, obviously someone else is lettering it. Uh, do you do you do you judge that at all? I suppose there is a Stan Sakai font. Okay, publishers are more than welcome to use for free. However, I think uh, most of them just have their standard stock lettering, which is fine. Um, it, I'm, the, I'm, I'm assuming you still hand, you hand letter though. You, you don't letter, use your font. Okay. I hand letter Usagi, I hand letter grew. And yep. when I was working with Stan Lee on Spider-Man, I would hand letter all the Spider-Man pages like that, hand letter. And, you know, I, I, I love hand lettering. Also too, it's a break from drawing because it's a, uses a different part of the brain. It's more mechanical work. And, you know, I, I enjoy taking a break every so often. Like I said, I just finished, uh, I just sent Sergio an uh, uh, issue of Gru, um, Gods Against Gru Part 4. So, yeah. yeah when like, you um, when, when, when you do the different parts of, of the job of mm -hmm. you know, you've got the scripting, the breakdown, the penciling, the inking, the lettering, they're all kind of distinct processes. Do you do, you do them uh, concurrently? Uh, kind of over, like, you know, you'll wake up in the morning, you'll pencil a little bit, and then you'll ink a little bit, and then, oh, and I'm going to just switch to lettering. Or do you do it kind of in chunks? I do it in chunks. I used to do it where I would uh, maybe pencil about three or four pages or a scene and then go ahead and ink it. But now it's gotten to the point where I, I usually just pencil out the entire book before I start lettering and then inking it. Mm -hmm. uh, I like to. I'm very. I'm a very linear thinker, and I uh, pretty much uh, work on one thing at a time. Uh, except for writing, I'm always writing. At least I'm writing in my in my head. I'm yeah. working out scripts, working out bugs, thinking of ways to make the story more interesting. And uh, <clears throat> however, the, the physical process, I tend to do it all in one chunk. Yeah. Interesting. Um, what, how about when you're working on something like 47 Ronin here, uh, which is from another <laughs> person's script? Um, mm -hmm. is, is, is there a different way that you approach the work uh, than when you're doing your own stuff? Yes. 47 Ronin was a pleasure to work with, with Mike Richardson. He gave me full scripts and he broke it down by pages. So I didn't have to thumbnail the entire page. I would thumbnail the um, the page, uh, the next page, on the back of the previous page uh, of his original artwork. His uh, his scripts were that that good, and uh, he was also open to suggestions that I made. And also, too, when he sent I sent back artwork, <laughs> he'd say, "Well, I think the story needs another four pages." So. Hmm. Uh, poor Diana Schultz was our editor for back uh, for that project, and she said, "You can't do that because that would increase the budget and you know uh, the page count." But you can't say no to the publisher. So yeah. she, but she did a great job for the last issue or the last part of it, uh, Forty Seven Ronin. I think we expanded it by uh, eight pages, and but it was all for the same price. So you know when you're the writer and the publisher as well, you can do stuff like that. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's great. Um, uh, how about, how about lettering Sergio? Um, it strikes me that maybe, and maybe I'm wrong about this because maybe you guys 
have, have worked this out. But it strikes me that it might be difficult to letter Sergio's work because he draws so much. And finding negative space to be able to put the word balloons could be difficult. Is that is that right or wrong? That would be right if I got the pages after he inked it. However, I got I get the pages, usually get the pages before he starts penciling. I mean, he'll do rough uh, pencils in blue line. So I can put the uh, uh, word balloons where I want to. And he'll just draw around the word balloons. Oh, interesting. However, because of COVID, and uh, he's been partially inking panels. So I've got to fit uh, the dialogue around uh, some of his artwork. And in just a few cases, he did not leave enough room for the, the lettering. So I would have to um, whiten out some of his artwork. But for the most part, you know, it's really easy to work with. And he does leave enough um, room for the balloons. So it's not that big a deal. Yeah. You're, so you're lettering, you're lettering directly onto the boards? I'm lettering on the boards. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. There's only a couple of times that I've had to letter on overlays, but I've yeah. never done computer lettering. Yeah. yeah. There was one instance of uh, we had to do an issue of John Sable Freelance for Mike Grell. Uh, it was or, uh, 20, 20 pages out, out of a 22-page story or something like that. And we had to do it over the weekend. And... <clears throat> Part of the, so I had to letter the entire book overnight, and part of it was in Gaelic. Huh. I, and I had to, you know, kind of look at the script and see, oh, there, there's these letters there, so I write those letters, and then look at the script again, make sure I got those letters right. But uh, we got it done. Uh, we got the pages, I think, on Friday, and we're finished on Sunday. And uh, for... That story, you know, uh, say John Sable was a, a freelance assassin or something. Yeah. And he was also by day uh, a children's book writer. So he wanted Sergio to draw the children's book part. And so uh, we got it done over the weekend. When it was sent in, uh, <clears throat> Mike had sent Sergio a nice bottle of champagne or something. But I got <laughs> nothing. Um. It, I, it's it, it's interesting. I don't know that I've ever spoken to someone specifically who has lettered other people's work that they that they weren't doing themselves because it seems like it's just such a challenge depending on who the artist is whether they leave you enough room to letter or not. Well, I like I said, I letter directly on the art boards. Yeah, and yeah. no, I. I enjoy lettering. It's like I said, it's a different part of the uh, creative process and a different part of the brain. So it's relaxing. And I still use the old Amy lettering guide and a little straight edge and everything. Nice. I like, I love it. I'm very old school. No, I love, I think, I think that's great. I think that that kind of craft is, it's important. And, uh, I think, you know, I often think that young cartoonists are missing something by not, doing work that way yeah, you know I and i understand the ease and the simplicity of doing it digitally i totally get that but i you know here's the thing i i i, I worry about for young cartoonists sometimes is these people doing 200 300 page graphic novels all digitally 
they don't even have their original art to potentially yeah. sell at the end of it, you know? And um, they'll print out one copy and call it the the original or the right. original print, but still, yeah. still a print. Yes. When I did the, uh, I went to Japan with uh, the uh, SCADS, uh, Savannah College of Art Design as a traveling teacher. And one of the things they wanted me to talk about was hand lettering and also uh, watercolor, uh, hand watercolor uh, paintings, because everything's done digitally now. And yeah. so part of that, that part of the, of the craft is getting lost. And like I keep saying, you know, I love the craft of creating comics and I love the process. Yeah. No, I, I, I sometimes I, I worry uh, how many new cartoonists we're graduating every year you know, there's there's at least four different programs that are graduating eight to ten new cartoonists a year, and we're putting them out into this world that you know it. I I don't know. It, it's anyway. Uh, it looks like we have one more question. What do you got, Jordan? Put it up on the screen. Uh, Pudrigo, hey there, he is. I he he's our best commentator. Do you have a, a particular ending in Vision for Usagi, or would you like to leave the story open? You know. At first, I had a very definite ending. Uh, Usagi started off as a secondary character, actually, uh, as part of the Nielsen ground for storyline. And Nielsen's a, a rabbit, uh, but he lives in Europe uh, about the same time as Usagi. And the original story the, was going to be like my Lord of the Rings. It was going to be an epic tale. I had envisioned it as um, a 2,500 page graphic novel and Usagi was going to make an appearance in about page 1000 and it pretty much told the story why there are funny animals or intelligent animals and why there are animals like the um like horses and you know yeah that are real animals and it also told about the rise of the humans and uh basically it all culminates in this huge uh, battle uh, taking place in the castle, um, Nielsen would become a rise up to become a king of all the the anthropomorphs, and they'd be holed up in this castle uh, similar to um, I had modeled after uh, Mont Saint Michel, the uh, the abbey in France, yeah. and uh, it was going to be surrounded by the humans or goblins. It was the goblins that were going to turn into uh, humans, but. Uh, Usagi was going to die a glorious death. I mean, he's has this uh, arrow in the eye, and he's charging up the the uh, opposing army, and very nice. But it pretty much um, was going to end with the the death of all the uh, the 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 anthropomorphs or the funny animals. But uh, after I did my first Usagi story, I just fell in love with the character. So I put that story, the nose and ground from the story. Uh, on the sideline and uh, I did a few more Nielsen stories after that but most of my, my main concentration was on Usagi so right now it's an open-ended open story yeah. so I'll just keep working on Usagi while I, as long as I can keep thinking of new ideas yeah, makes sense to me. Um, is uh, I I don't know if you wanna if you wanna name your favorite children, but who's who's your favorite supporting character to either draw or write? <laughs> and are, is, it, is it different for drawing versus writing? 
I like Hermie. He's Nielsen Groundhopper's sidekick, and he's just okay. a fun character. He's a guinea pig, and he's pretty much like a talking potato. It's uh, he's he's fun to write for. He's fun to draw. He's very naive, and so he's my favorite actually. Yeah, and in Usagi's uh, world, I guess it would be after Usagi, um, maybe Gen Gen the Rhino, the bounty hunter, because I like the play versus uh, the rabbit and and the huge uh rhinoceros yeah very nice i like the uh i like the samurai bats but not the, the ninja bats I, I love the ninja bats i i think they'll be in the, uh, the usagi uh the, the netflix uh show and they have a neat little gimmick so it's cool I, I wish i had thought of that awesome um uh so you say you've you've got ideas like for the next five years mm -hmm. um do you do you see yourself retiring at any point i hope not please say oh, no I, you know i love what i do yeah and you know i'm very grateful that i'm just blessed it's like i get to do this and the thing with owning your own character is that i have complete creative control it's like one person making the entire movie, uh, an entire movie by himself. I mean, it, like uh, Taika Waititi, if he could create his own movie, uh, he could write it directly. He even acts in it. I mean, he's he's terrific. And you know, that's pretty much what I'm doing with Usagi, except more so because I do everything. I have complete creative control, not only of the um, the stories, but also the uh, licensing and merchandising of handling. Of what I want to do with Usagi, so it's it's wonderful. I I really am blessed. Yeah. No, you're you're uh, living the dream. Uh, you're it 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 because I, I came up with the time, uh, you know, owning a store and and Sim was making his big self publisher push, and I really believed in that way of creator control, mm -hmm. but no one ever was able to really make it work other than Sim. You know. Yeah. Um, uh, and the fact that you are still doing this, you know, the other people who I can think of who are major successes, you know, like Jeff Smith say, oh, you yeah, know, had, had a, had a, that was a finite story. There's not, he's not still doing bone today. Yeah. You're still doing this. And, and I, I admire you for that in a way that I, I, I don't know that I can articulate properly. You're, you're, the kind of perfect example of what a comic book cartoonist could be doing, you know, working in genre. The only other people who I can think of who are even slightly co comparable would probably be the Hernandez brothers. Oh, yeah. Who have also done exactly their own story, uh, you know, throughout this time. But everybody else doesn't really get to work like that. And it's amazing to me. And I am. I am so I'm so glad for you, and I'm I'm so proud that I know you that I've been able to do anything to help you. You oh, know, thank you. Thank I just you. I honestly genuinely want to say that because you are to me the dream of how a cartoonist should be able to live their life and conduct their business and do their work, and and the fact that you are such a consummate artist. Uh, is just icing on the top of the cake. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. And people like you, bookstores, that yeah. you know, help support me. And 
others like me. So thank you. Yeah, yeah. No, I, uh, I, I, it's very sincere. It's very sincere. Um, let's leave it with the, let's leave it with, with the, uh, recommendation for other question. There's many cartoonists who, who watch this series, learn about technique, learn about craft, learn about potential. What would be the piece of, of advice, whether it's technical, whether it's emotional, whether it's spiritual? Uh, to an aspiring cartoonist today who who wants to have a path someone like yours? Well, if it's for a cartoonist, uh, the writing part, if you want to be a good writer, you have to be a good reader. So read, read everything, not just comic books, but also uh, books like uh, O. Henry. I was just talking to a young cartoonist the uh, other day, and um, he was looking for books for um, O. Henry books, and I recommended uh, a couple, uh, especially short stories. If you want to be a, a good artist, draw and draw from life. Don't just copy comic books because the artists who work in comic books have worked at the craft for years. And if you just look at their stuff now and emulate it, what they're doing now, you're discounting all that years of training that he's they've had before them. So draw, start from the start, uh, take art classes, learn to per uh, perspective, uh, draw from life, learn how the fig figure moves, um, horses, not also buildings, not just people. Uh, do backgrounds, do uh, draw everything. Uh, draw from life, and then once you have the basics down, then you can think about developing a style. But don't think about trying to emulate someone's style now because you'll be discounting all that years of preparation that it took that person to get to that style. Sounds perfect to me. Sounds perfect to me. I uh, I want to thank you, Stan, for taking the time to talk to us. I want to thank you for the decades that you put into creating Usagi and and just building this world and building these characters. Um, genuinely, thank you for everything that you that you do. It's 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 fantastic, and uh, I, I I I wish I, I wish. Your comics sold like a million copies a month because it really deserves to, I, I gotta say. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Brian. Yeah. No, it's 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 my absolute ple pleasure. Um, so uh the book is Usagi Ujimbo. Uh if 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 you uh are looking for a good comic to read, um I I thoroughly recommend this. Your local comic shop can get you Usagi. There are multiple entry points. Um, uh, the Fantagraphic series uh, is in seven volumes. Dark Horse starts again uh, in big books that are numbered again, one through eight at this point. Uh, IDW is about to start a new series. So you've got lots of entry points into it and, and it's all good and it's all wonderful and you should be certainly buying it. Uh, our guest this month was was the master, the, the, the true gentleman. You can see what a kind and thoughtful uh, person he is and he does a great comic, and it's just—it's so violent too, and it's—it's it's everything you want in a comic. I don't know. I—it's it's great. So thank you, thank Jordan for uh, running the show. Uh, uh, thank you for my staff for running the stores. Thank you for the beat for sponsoring us. Thank you, the readers, for supporting these books uh, uh, and supporting these conversations every month. And we will talk to you next month or next week. <laughs>